0: A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. This article is from The National. Date 26th September 2022. From the News section. Have your say on devolved tax aimed at boosting recycled materials in construction by Steph Brown. The Scottish Government is seeking views on a new tax that would aim to incentivise the use of recycled materials in construction. The Scottish Aggregates Levy will replace the current UK-wide tax which is payable when newly quarried products are used for commercial purposes. The current charge is priced at £2 per tonne having been frozen in 2009 by the UK government but the Scottish government has said it will not lay out its plans for the rate at this stage. Public Finance Minister Tom Arthur has said he hoped a new tax would help to boost the circular economy and prompt the use of recycled materials. The extraction and production of aggregates like crushed rock and sand creates and supports jobs, including many in our rural areas, he said. However, we know that extraction of new materials can also have an environmental impact. These proposals are intended to drive up recycling and reuse rates, helping the construction industry meet its climate and sustainability commitments and protecting Scotland's natural environment by reducing the need for virgin materials. It will also support our ambitious National Strategy for Economic Transformation objectives for green and sustainable economic growth and result in a greater proportion of the Scottish budget being directly raised in Scotland. I want to ensure this tax is well designed takes full account of the Scottish context and maximises opportunities offered by devolution. I would encourage all interested people and organisations to respond to this consultation. The change was mentioned in this year's programme for government, with legislation due to be introduced next year and the tax provisionally scheduled to take effect from 2025. The consultation closed on December fourth, and invites comments on a range of issues including the rationale for and scope of the tax, whether exemptions and reliefs should be included, operational arrangements and the case for introducing a new sustainability fund. That article was by Steph Brown. This article is from The National. Date 26th September 2022 From the Culture Section Scotland's Long and Rich History of Embracing Immigration By Rory McClellan Immigration to Scotland and the rest of the UK is often presented as a recent phenomenon, only becoming common after 1945 and then increasing after joining the European Union. Some politicians and pundits would like to claim this was entirely unprecedented, that Scotland was not used to hosting migrant communities. But in fact, it was home to migrants for centuries before the Irish immigration of the 19th century, the Windrush generation and EU membership. As far back as the medieval period, there was a significant foreign settlement in Scotland. Much of Western and Northern Scotland were settled by Vikings in the 8th and 9th centuries. The Western Isles and Caithness were owned by Norway until 1266 and Orkney until 1472. Norn, the Scandinavian language of Orkney, Caithness and Shetland only died out in the mid 19th century. Further south, medieval Scotland was home to many settlers from northern France and the Low Countries. There were Normans living in Scotland as early as 1052, when knights were driven out of England and fled north, joining the court of Macbeth, then King of Scots. In fact, many of Scotland's most noble families, including the Stuarts, Cummings, Bruce's, and Balliols, All originally came to Britain from northern France, either with William the Conqueror in 1066 or in the decades that followed. Many were brought to Scotland by David I, who had spent many years in England and at the Anglo-Norman court there in his role as Earl of Huntingdon before he became King of Scots in 1124. The Flemish also came to Scotland as hinted at by the continued presence of the surname Fleming among Scots today. During his reign, David I undertook a transformation of Scotland's urban centres, creating a system of boroughs across the kingdom. Two of these, Berwick and St Andrews, were designed by one of his servants, Maynard the Fleming. Aberdeen, Dundee and Inverkeithing were all home to foreign merchants, mostly from Germany and the Low Countries. There were also visitors to medieval Scotland from much further afield. A troop of Africans were at court of James IV in 1505, performing a dance for the King on Shrove Tuesday. James took to the group's African choreographer and drummer, giving him clothes, a horse and other gifts. One of the women in the troupe was even the subject of a poem by the famous Scots maker William Dunbar, which describes her central role in a staged tournament of the Black Knight and the Black Lady. Other Africans appeared for the royal court for the rest of the century. From the 18th century onwards, Scotland's involvement in the British Empire led to further migration as people travelled from Britain's colonies to its centre. Some would only settle for a short while, such as T. O. Soga, a young Hosa man who came to Scotland in the 1840s to train to be a priest. He studied at Glasgow University and a theological college in Edinburgh, married a Scot and then returned to South Africa to become the first black ordained priest there. Glasgow was home to a large Lascar community in the 19th century. Lascars were sailors, usually from India or Southeast Asia, who worked on European ships. In 1895, there were over 8,000 Lascars in Glasgow, though many would come and go with the shipping. Others settled more permanently, like Ahmad Aziz an Indian scholar living in Glasgow by the late 1800s. The country's part in the slave trade also saw enslaved people from Africa and Asia being brought to Scotland. In April 1773, the Glasgow Journal ran an advert for the recapture of an African man called Thomas Diddy who had fled the home of his enslaver, the merchant John Alston. Ulstone offered money for his arrest and threatened to sue anyone who helped hide Thomas or helped him escape. Glasgow University's Runaway Slaves in Britain project found 67 such adverts placed in Scottish newspapers between 1719 and 1797. Some Scottish newspapers even carried adverts for the sale of enslaved people. In 1766 Peter Thomson, an Edinburgh auctioneer, posted an advert selling scientific equipment. Almost as an afterthought he added an enslaved East Indian black boy, 16 years old. He can wait at table and is very ready at learning anything. Some of these enslaved people managed to win their freedom and build lives for themselves in Scotland. During his enslavement in Guyana, John Edmonstone accompanied the naturalist Charles Waterton on several scientific expeditions, during which he was taught the art of taxidermy. After being brought to Scotland by his enslaver in 1817, he was freed, and by 1824 he was working for the University of Edinburgh's Zoological Museum and offering private tuition in taxidermy. Among the students he taught was a young Charles Darwin, who would later put these skills to good use in his famous voyage on the Beagle. A great many immigrants to Scotland in this period came from Ireland, due to the potato famine and greater opportunities in Scotland. Much of this was to Glasgow, Greenock and Paisley, but also further east to towns such as Dundee. By the middle of the 19th century, more than 7% of Scotland's population was Irish-born. Other communities came to Scotland as refugees. The late 19th century saw many Eastern European immigrants come to Britain, particularly Jews fleeing pogroms in the Russian Empire. By 1901, almost a quarter of the foreign-born population of Scotland was made up of Russian Jews. Another large community were Lithuanians, many of whom settled in Lanarkshire in the early 1890s to work the coal fields there, particularly in Cope Bridge. These stories show that Scotland has long been home to foreign visitors and migrant communities, both from Europe and far beyond, and including many other communities not mentioned, such as Italians, Poles and Afro-Caribbeans. The country has a centuries long history of diversity and multiculturalism, no matter what some political figures and pundits may think. That article was by Rory MacLennan. This article is from The National, date 26th September 2022, from the Politics section. SNP and ALBA. Hit back at claims Nicholas Sturgeon's party is pretending it's left wing. By Hamish Morrison Accusations from a senior Labour politician that the SNP are pretending to be a left-wing party have been described as risible. Lisa Nandy took aim at the party during Labour's annual conference, calling the Scottish Government terrible. And saying the SNP were peddling a aggressive ideology. It comes as Labour twists itself in knots, trying to formulate a route back to power by regraining lost ground in Scotland. Former leader Jim Murphy, who led the Scottish party to its historic humiliation in the 2015 general election, has said Labour must confront nationalism instead of arguing with the SNP about devolution. But his colleague, the West of Scotland MSP Katie Clarke, has said Labour must make giving Holyrood more powers its top priority. Speaking at an event on Sunday, Nandy said the SNP administration in Holyrood was one of the most centralising governments in the history of our country. She added, I think for too long the SNP has got away with portraying themselves as some kind of cuddly lefty party. But I think they've done something else as well, which is that they convince sections of Westminster that they are synonymous with Scotland. We need to call out what is our aggressive ideology that they peddle and an appalling record. But I also think that we need to show that we can stand up for something better. The shadow levelling up Secretary also likened the SNP government to the Tories in Westminster, saying people in Scotland were living under two terrible governments. The SNP has said the accusations were laughable. Kirsten Oswald, the party's Deputy Westminster Leader, said... As Labour continues to cement its place in Scotland as part of the party of dodgy Tory deals and a growing obsession with mimicking right-wing Tory policies, people across Scotland will find this almost laughable. Whilst the SNP has been standing up and delivering for Scotland, the Labour Party has slid further and further into irrelevance by becoming almost indistinguishable from the Tories whether it be in councils across Scotland in their support for damaging policies Scotland hasn't voted for or by attempting to block the Scottish people from democratically choosing their own future. The only way for people across Scotland to get the better future they deserve is by becoming an independent country, something more and more Labour supporters are backing. It comes after we revealed how more than one-third of Labour support voters now support Scottish independence, its highest ever level. Alaba Westminster leader Neil Hanvey defended his former party, saying whilst I clearly have my differences with the political direction and priorities of the current Scottish Government, Lisa Nandy's comments are risible a Labour Party who have abandoned trade unions, have taken justified strike action, is the epitome of pretendy left politics. Her criticism of a centralist agenda would carry more credibility if her own party weren't so determined at squashing Scotland's democracy as much as the Tories. You can't get a fag paper between them on this. And that just underscores the urgency for Scottish independence. The SNP were given that mandate. It's time for them to get on with the job. That article was by Hamish Morrison.
1: From the National, Monday the twenty sixth of september twenty twenty two, from the comment section Les Trusses Tories require direct action, not mere hand wringing. By Steph Peyton. The death of 22-year-old Masa Amani, known also by her Kurdish name Zina Amani, while detained by the so-called morality peace in a- police in Iran, has kick-started the most significant pushback against the state's violent fundamentalism since 2009's Green Revolution. While women burn their hijabs in her defiance, security forces open fire on protesters, playing the traditional role of escalating tensions that police and law enforcers often have when faced with disobedience. The bravery on display from those who refuse to comply with the Iranian security forces is nothing short of incredible and I hope that change will follow, as it has when others have stood up to their regressive governments and state institutions that protect them. LGBT plus rights in the Western world owe much to New York's Stonewall riots in 1969 and the less remembered Compton's Cafeteria riot that preceded it. The suffragettes bombing and arson campaign between 1912 and 1914 led directly to the start of women's suffrage in the United Kingdom and the poll tax riots against the Conservative government in 1990 began the downfall of Thatcher's regime. History shows that mass movements against regressive governments and despots are predominantly the only means of securing real change in a way that polite protest never can. Yet violence is never the first port of call. Time and again it is police escalation that remains the biggest contributor to how demonstrations evolve from protest to riot and the police in the UK are no friends to those most impacted by the Conservative Party's tax-cutting, billionaire-backing mini-budget. Some have described it as an act of economic vandalism but quasi Quartin's proposed tax cuts in England and Wales are so much worse than that. The most significant and far-reaching since the early 1970s they are set to funnel even more wealth directly upwards to the 1%. Any games for the poorest and Britain are marginal at best, and for key workers, such as teachers and nurses, the proposals actually represent an increase in income tax. The toxic combination of scrapping the cap on bankers' bonuses and promises to further curtail the power of trade unions has led to the kind of bankers' budget that would give the bastard offspring of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan a gasping orgasm. With the UK government's prior legislation to effectively ban protest in place, the match is lit. And if you thought Scotland would feel the heat from Westminster's new government, think again. The resulting def- defunding and collapse of services that must follow a budget with such a bent for the rich will have repercussions here. Tory-backing newspapers are champing at the bit to have the Scottish government follow suit, decrying Scotland as the highest tax nation in the UK while skipping over the benefits and services that come with marginally more progressive tax system. If the the Tories have learned anything from the failed Boris Johnson experiment, it's that they can get away with a lot more than they previously thought, and they have not wasted a moment before grasping that opportunity. Hedge fund managers made a killing in profit by betting against the pound ahead of the mini-budget announcement, and with more tax cuts and extreme Tory policies to follow, You can bet the parasites are ready to make a whole lot more. It's a fire sale where everything must go, and the consequences will be disastrous. Age Scotland has warned that the lack of real help from the Conservative government, which has prioritised the wealth of their friends over the needs of the poor, will mean more people dying this winter as a result of spiraling energy costs and the cost of living crisis. Thankfully, the chancellors in Downing Street already have a few scapegoats lined up, benefits claimants and transgender people among them, the culture war rhetoric to people over ideological cracks in this new government, which is the same as the old government, are already having frightening consequences. A recent anti-trans event in Brighton saw emboldened fascist organisers sitting side by side between gender-critical activists in opposition to trans equality. We can expect the Conservatives' full culture war rhetoric to dominate the headlines as the dangerous inadequacies of Liz Trust and her government bear, fruit of the, bear the fruit of her budget. However, the fact is, we won't make, any, make it through two years of this. This isn't the time to listen to the kind of liberal who condemns direct action against an oppressive force while supporting a suffragette tote bag or stonewall badge, damning the pedigree of their own identity. Action gets results and hand-wringing over this issue will only make it harder to build back in the future. But worse, there will be no saving those already lost to us by then. We wouldn't sit in a burning building for two years in the hope that we'll eventually have the chance to vote the fire out, yet that is exactly what we are being asked to do. When all other avenues are exhausted, the voiceless only have one option left. And that was a comment piece by Steph Payton. From the National, Tuesday the 27th of September 2022, from the news section, Concerns Ferguson Marine got preferential treatment in ferry contracting, John Swinney says? by Xander Eliards. The Deputy First Minister has raised concerns that the shipyard which has so far failed to deliver on two over budget and late ferries was given preferential treatment during the tendering process. In 2015, the SNP government awarded Ferguson Marine in Port Glasgow, at the time owned by billionaire Jim McCall, the contract to build two new ferries. The shipyard has since been nationalized and the two vessels are at least £150 million over budget and five years late. The BBC reported that Ferguson Marine was given sight of more than a 400-page document setting out the technical requirements for the vessels. The reports say a design consultant passed the document to the yard. The shipyard was also allowed to change its design during the tendering process, making its pitch almost £10 million cheaper. There was also a confidential meeting between the Yard and the Scottish Government's Ferry Procurement Body, Caledonia Marine Assets Limited CIMAL, a courtesy not extended to other bidders in the process. In an interview with the BBC for a documentary set to air on Tuesday, Swinney said, These issues have got to be looked into further as a result of what you've put to me today. I listened to this material in good faith. It's not been put to me in the past, but I do assure you that it is material that I take seriously, about which I have concerns, which raises fundamental issues for me about the fairness and appropriateness of the tendering process and they have to be satisfied that these issues are properly looked at. Also speaking to the BBC document in McCall, the Monaco-based former shipyard owner, said the document put Ferguson Marine in a very strong position to win the tender. The procurement and building of the vessels has been an ongoing issue in recent years and the subject of two parliamentary inquiries one of which is ongoing, and a report by the Auditor-General. The yard was pulled out of administration by the Scottish Government and nationalised in 2019, but a series of issues with the building of the vessels were soon identified that resulted in delays and overspends. The Glen Glensanachs and the as-yet-unnamed Hull 822 are expected to be completed next year, with the cost some two and a half times the initial £97 million. Particular focus is falling on the failure of Ferguson Marine to offer a builder's refund guarantee, which would have protected public money once construction ran into problems. It was not until after the yard had been made the preferred bidder in the tendering process that its inability to offer the guarantee came to light. In an article by Xander Eliards From the National Tuesday the 27th of September 2022 From the politics section Holyrood to debate bill to make it easier to unseat MSPs. Report by Abbey Garton Crosby. The Scottish Parliament is set to scrutinise a bill which would make it easier to remove MSPs from the office. Scottish Tory MSP Graeme Simpson lodged the final proposal for the removal from office and recall bill on Tuesday. The legislation, if passed, would introduce new measures to allow MSPs to be with- withdrawn from their roles Including additional grounds for dismissal and new processes to be put in place for any removals, the real change would bring in the Parliament in line with procedures in local authorities, where councillors are removed if they don't pay part, tar- take part in proceedings for six months without a valid reason. Simpson is now seeking cross-party support for his legislation, which would ensure any MSP given a prison sentence would be automatically removed from office. In two thousand thirteen. A majority of MSPs had to back a motion calling for the resignation of SMB politician Bill Walker after he was convicted of assault and breach of the peace charges. Simpson said, I'm pleased my bill to ensure that it will be easier to remove MSPs who don't carry out their duties has now reached this stage. The consultation responses were positive and showed a desire for, among the public for them to have the ability to remove politicians from the Scottish Parliament are clearly not serving those who put them into that privileged position. Taxpayers should not be continuing to subsidise MSPs who do not even turn up to the Parliament, yet can still claim a large salary and expenses. Local authorities have this ability to remove councillors and constituents of MPs, have the ability to recall them and hold them to account for their misconduct. It is time the Scottish Parliament caught up. My plans would mean the public can be confident in the future that this would occur with the MSPs who have fallen short of the standards expected of them. The legislation would create procedures to remove MSPs who have failed to participate in Parliament, are imprisoned or received serious sanctions for breaching parliamentary rules. I hope that my fellow MSPs see that my recall bill is common sense and it will secure cross-party support. I urge them to back it. There was also criticism of a lack of mechanism for the public to remove an MSP after former Finance Secretary Derek Mackay quit his post in February 2020 on the eve of the Scottish budget after it emerged he had sent over 100 text messages to a teenage boy. Mackay did not return to the public eye or Holyrood until he resigned as an MSP ahead of the Holyrood election in May 2021. An SNP spokesperson said it is for the Parliament to decide whether these proposals should be adopted. The SNP will consider any proposals that are brought forward. Another article is by Abbey Garten-Crosby from the National, Tuesday, the twenty seventh of September, twenty twenty two, from the Politics section. Jake Berry, Tory tax cut critics don't believe in Britain. Article by Abby Garten-Crosby. Critics of Liz Truss's tax cuts don't believe in Britain and are the same people who attacked Brexit, the Tory party chairman has claimed. Despite a YouGov poll finding that 7 in 10 Tory voters don't approve of the plans, which disproportionately benefit high earners, Jake Berry, MB for Rossendale and Darwin, brushed off disapproval of the policies. Truss and Chancellor Kwasi cortens budget, which included the unpopular move of scrapping the banker's bonus cap and dropping an income, incoming height to corporation tax, has raised eyebrows among economic experts in the US who have suggested the pound could fall below the euro and dollar. But according to Berry, criticism levelled at the Tory government for backing those with higher incomes rather than providing support for those in need. It's from the same people who oppose Brexit and subsequently dismissed their concerns. In his first interview since taking the role, Berry told the Daily Express, I really believe in Britain, and our Prime Minister really believes in Britain. I know Britain can do this. If I am really honest with you, and I think about the collective voices which we have heard doubting the fact that Britain can go for growth, I mean, it really is the same people who opposed Brexit. It's the same people a few years ago after Britain voted to leave the EU were saying, Britain can't stand on her own two feet, we can't be an independent sovereign nation outside the EU, you working people, you didn't know what you're doing. You were stupid voting for Brexit. Those same voices, in fact, in many cases, the exact same people who have gone from being experts on European law to experts in the financial market overnight, saying we can't do this. He added, "The message I would clearly give is that they were wrong about Brexit and they are wrong about this government's ambition to grow the economy." Berry was previously chairman of Northern Research Group (NRG) which led the Tory party campaign in red wall seats in the north of England, securing Boris Johnson's 2019 victory. He criticised the Labour Party's vow to undo the policies put in place by Quarting if they came to power, adding he didn't believe that mini-budget was for the rich only. Berry added, I think the Labour Party is making a big mistake. People who voted Conservative, voted Conservative because they wanted a Conservative government, not because they wanted some pay limitation of a socialist government. He added, this growth is going to be delivered by people who work in factories in places like Doncaster, Darlington, or work in the financial services in London or Leeds, or work in IT in Cheltenham or Cheedo. The people going into their workplace, working hard, growing the economy and at the end of it keeping more of their own money. That's what this government promised, them, and that's what it delivered. Berry also claimed the policies in the mini-budget are focused on putting more money back into the pockets of working people. We previously told how a think tank warned that the Tory party's budget will do nothing to help the 2 million people at risk of falling into poverty this winter. An analysis by Resolution Foundation said, Only the very richest households in Britain will see their incomes grow as a result of the most significant tax cuts in 50 years. The richest 5% will see their incomes grow by 2% next year, 2023-24. While the other 95% of the population will get poorer. And that article is by Abby Garton Crosby. From the National. Tuesday, the 27th of September 2022. From the News section. Rise in number of residential rehabilitation places approved in Scotland. By Adam Robertson. The number of places in Scotland approved for alcohol and drug residential rehabilitation treatment. Has increased from last year. There were 218 placements approved between April and June this year, compared to 78 during the same period last year. On average, the number of placements is currently sitting at 67 per month during the current financial year, up from 39 per month in 2021 22. Spending on residential rehabilitation increased from £969,277 during the first quarter of the year to over £1.7 million between April and June. Separate figures revealed a slight fall in waiting time performance for people accessing specialist drug and alcohol treatment services. Between April and June, 90.5% of community referrals were completed with a wait of three weeks or less, compared to 92% in the previous quarter. Ministers have pledged to invest in residential rehabilitation in response to Scotland's drug death crisis, A total of 1,330 people lost their lives to drugs in Scotland in 2021 which represented a slight decline in 2020 and the first time since 2013 in which drug deaths did not increase. Meanwhile, statistics revealed this year showed the number of deaths caused by alcohol in Scotland were at their highest since 2008. Last year, the Scottish Government said it would invest £100 million to residential rehabilitation over the current five-year term of the Scottish Parliament. Drugs Policy Minister Angela Constance said the goal was to increase funding by 300%. She said, We welcome the publication of these latest statistics published by Public Health Scotland and are encouraged to see that between April and June this year there were 218 placements into residential rehabilitation. These numbers represent the highest number of quarterly placements on record meaning more people with problem drug and alcohol use are accessing residential treatment and support to aid the recovery. While the statistics do indicate progress, we recognise that more can still be done to get people into appropriate treatment quicker in order to reduce harms and help with recovery. Through our work on pathways into rehab and investment in capacity, we aim to increase the number of placements by 300% over the course of this parliament, so that in 2026, at least a thousand people are publicly funded for their placement. Our national mission aims to widen access to all types of treatment. She continued, some individuals and groups face additional challenges in accessing the treatment they need. This is why we have acted on research which highlighted the need to improve provision for individuals with specific needs and make funds available through the improvement fund. We're investing a total of 250 million pounds over the course of this parliament in a range of different treatments and services in order that all those affected and their families can receive the support which is right for them when they need it. An article is by Adam Robertson.
2: From the National, Tuesday the 27th of September 2022, from the sports section. Glenn Kamara details Premier League transfer dreams as he opens up on difficult Rangers situation by Mark Walker. Glenn Kamara admits he's struggled for confidence because he hasn't made many starts for Rangers this season under Giovanni van Bronckhorst. The Finland midfielder is at the centre of another racism storm after playing for his country in their 2-0 win in Montenegro on Monday. UEFA have launched an investigation after he was allegedly targeted by a home player during the game. He was previously racially abused by Czech defender Andre Kudela during a Europa League match. Kudela received a 10-game ban. Kamara, 26, has been at the centre of transfer speculation this season, having made a sluggish start to the season. He has made just two league starts for Rangers this term, the last of which came when he was hooked at half-time in their old firm hammering at Celtic. And he admitted that he's not in an ideal situation at Ibrox at the moment. He said, The head coach decides the team. Whether I'm on the bench or on the pitch, I'll do my job. I work hard. I just have to keep doing it. That's the truth. Sometimes I know why I'm not in the starting lineup. I've talked to the manager sometimes after games or before a match. Of course, it's difficult to have full confidence when I don't get to play. I haven't played in that many games now or started many. It hasn't been easy. As I said, you have to keep working and then everything will be fine." And former Arsenal player Kamara, in an interview in Finnish publication Helsing Zanomat, admits he's made no secret that he would love to try and move up a level. He said, I've always dreamed of playing in the Premier League and perhaps not just playing in the English Premier League, but in the top five leagues in general they all interest me. Let's see what happens. My time at Rangers has been good. The club has been good to me. I've been there for almost four years. Who knows what the future will bring. Maybe we just have to wait and see what happens. And Kamara, who insists he had moved on from the Kudela incident a long time ago, revealed how much he regrets Rangers falling at the final hurdle last season in that agonising penalty kick shootout defeat to Eintracht Frankfurt in the Europa League final. He recalled, The place in the final was a huge deal for the club and the fans. It was something that many of us players hadn't experienced before. It was something new and at the same time a little unreal. After beating RB Leipzig, it hit me that we are indeed in the final. Maybe I only realised it properly a few days later. It was definitely an experience, but of course I would like to have won the final. We just weren't good enough on the day. It was hard to digest that result. That was a highlight, and definitely winning the league was too. It was a strange time because of Covid. Of course, winning the Scottish Cup was also a highlight. That article was by Mark Walker. From the National, Tuesday the 27th of September 2022, from the Sports Section. Rangers fined alongside JD and Elite Sports by CMA for price-fixing on official merchandise by Aidan Smith. Rangers have been fined alongside JD Sports and Elite Sports by the Competition and Markets Authority, CMA, after being found guilty of price-fixing on official merchandise. An investigation found that Elite Sports and JD Sports broke competition laws by fixing the retail prices of a number of Rangers branded replica kits and other clothing products from September 2018 until July 2019. The Ibrox Club also took part in the collusion, but only to the extent of fixing the retail price of adult home short-sleeved replica shirts from September 2018 to mid-November 2018. All three firms colluded to stop J.D. Sports from undercutting the retail price of the shirt on Elite's jersey online store. Elite Sports has been fined £459,000, J.D. Sports £1,485,000 and Rangers £225,000. The penalties include a settlement discount, reflecting resource savings to the CMA, as a result of all three parties admitting to acting illegally and helping bring a swifter resolution to the CMA's investigation. Elite sports and JD sports penalties also include a discount for coming forward with information about their participation in the illegal conduct and cooperating with the investigation under the CMA's leniency programme. Michael Grenfell, Executive Director of Enforcement at the CMA, said at a time when many people are worried about the rising cost of living it is important that football fans are able to benefit from competitively priced merchandise. Instead, elite, JD sports and to some extent rangers work together to keep prices high. Today's decision sends a clear message to football clubs and other businesses that illegal anti-competitive collusion will not be tolerated. That article was by Aidan Smith From the National Tuesday the twenty seventh of september twenty twenty two from the sports section What the new Sky Sports Deal Means for All Scottish Clubs by Ewan Peyton The SPFL have secured a new one hundred and fifty million TV broadcasting deal with Sky Sports. The agreement was struck on Monday after a qualified resolution among Premiership Clubs was passed with an 11-1 to 1 majority. The deal was thrown into doubt, with Rangers and Livingstone failing to provide their backing to the proposal. However, the latter eventually voted through the deal, which gave the SPFL the green light to rubber-stamp the t and with Sky. In an email to clubs, SPFL Chief Murdoch McLennan said, I am pleased to be able to advise you that the commercial resolution in respect of the proposal from Sky has now been approved by Cinch Premiership Clubs and that the qualified resolution according to the SPF rules to accommodate the Sky proposal has also been approved. Thank you for your support of this important rule change. The extended contract with Sky will underpin the finances of the SPFL for the next seven years, in the face of what appears to be strengthening economic headwinds. Over the coming days, we will look to contract with Sky and to announce the extension, which will be by far the largest single commercial contract in the history of Scottish League football. So what does the New Deal entail, and what does it mean for Scottish clubs? We have covered how much is the deal worth. Overall, the new package is worth £150 million. Broken down, this means that Sky will pay £30 million per season. Now confirmed, it will increase the Top Flight Club's collective TV income by £5 million per season. When does the deal kick in? The new five-year broadcast contract will begin in 2024. How many games will be shown on Sky? As part of the current deal, 48 games are selected for TV broadcast. The new figure will be 60 games up until the summer of 2029. This will see each team's number of home matches chosen for TV increased from four per season to five. Sky will also be granted first refusal on buying up two further bundles of matches, potentially taking the total number of games on the box to eighty. That article was by Ewan Peyton
3: The National News on Wednesday the twenty eighth of September Education Secretary urged to intervene in Teacher Pay Talks An article written by Adam Robertson A teachers union has urged Education Secretary Shirley Anne Somerville to intervene in Pay Talks. Teachers have rejected a five percent pay offer from local authorities which has brought the prospect of strike action closer. On Wednesday, the NAS-UWT union urged the Education Secretary to get involved in pay talks. Negotiations for teachers are currently handled by the Scottish Negotiating Committee for Teachers, a tripartite body with representatives from the Scottish Government, teachers and councils. NASUWT General Secretary Dr Patrick Roach said... It's extremely disappointing that despite our best efforts, the Cabinet Secretary has failed to prioritise talks to avert future industrial action in schools. The government and employers need to demonstrate that they're serious about addressing the deepening crisis in teacher morale, recruitment and retention. Nine out of ten teachers are worried about their finances or taking on second and third jobs to make ends meet using food banks, struggling with rent and mortgage costs and using up their savings to pay monthly bills. The Scottish Government and the employers must stop taking the teaching profession for granted. Dr Roach went on to say the union was acting on the very clear mandate of our members to step up our campaign to secure a Real Terms Pay award for teachers. He added, The latest pay cut proposals from the employers are an insult to the teaching profession. The continuing delays and procrastination by the government and the employers are rubbing salt into the wounds. Teachers deserve better than this. Industrial action in schools will be the fault of government and employers alone. Involvement from the Education Secretary would mark the second time in recent months where pay negotiations were subject to direct ministerial intervention. The First Minister, in a bid to avert strike action from waste workers and non-teaching education staff, held marathon talks with unions and local authority body COSLA, eventually reaching a deal that saw walkouts cancelled. The Scottish Government has been contacted for comment. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National News, on Wednesday the 28th of September. Iconic yellow hotel on the Tobamori seafront now up for sale. An article written by Ninian Wilson. An iconic hotel on the Isle of Mull has been put up for sale after only ever being owned by two families in the last 160 years. The Mishnish Hotel in Tobamori, known locally as the Mish, is being listed by commercial agency Drysdale and Company and forms the yellow section of the famous row of colourful buildings on the town seafront. The trio of buildings has been made instantly recognisable through numerous advertising campaigns, but is best known through featuring in the Scottish children's television show Bala And the recently refurbished 12-bedroom site, complete with its own restaurant and bar, is now available, with offers over £1.95 million being considered. Present owners of the Mishnish, Les and Meg MacLeod, are selling the hotel, which they acquired in 2014, in order to retire. Commenting on the sale, Mr McLeod said, The Mishnish is really something special. It's so well known by sailors, musicians and rally drivers all over the country and beyond, with a vibrant reputation for live music acts. We fully upgraded the hotel when we became the owners, breathing new life into it, but making sure that we still maintained the traditional bar atmosphere for which it's known. We have a collection of old shipwreck memorabilia which visitors find fascinating, as well as memorabilia from around the town itself. So many places have been modernised and lost that special ambience, which to us was very important in this island community, very much the heart and soul of the Mishnish. The Macleods finished by saying that the hotel offered bags of potential to a new owner who's buying a really iconic property. They added... We know that it's unlikely that another MacLeod will become the owner of this property, which first opened its doors in 1869. But as long as it's someone who has a passion for this very special part of Scotland, we'll be happy. We're ready to retire and enjoy the next stage of our lives, having thoroughly enjoyed our time at the Mishnish. An article written by Ninian Wilson. The National News on Wednesday, the 28th of September. King Charles to hold public engagements in Dunfermline to mark city status An article written by Laura Webster The King and Queen Consort are to hold their first joint public engagements since royal mourning ended by visiting Dunfermline to mark the former town becoming a city. Charles and Camilla will attend an official council meeting at the city chambers next Monday and visit Dunfermline Abbey in celebration of the metropolis' new status. During the day, the king and his wife will also host a reception at Edinburgh's Palace of Holyrood House to celebrate British South Asian communities. Eight places were made cities as part of celebrations marking the 70-year reign of the late monarch after successfully bidding for the honour under the Platinum Jubilee Civic Honours Competition. The settlements were asked to highlight their royal associations as well as showcase their communities and local identity. Royal mourning ended on Tuesday and has seen the Prince and Princess of Wales visiting Wales for the first time since taking up their titles. During his visit to Dunfermline, the King will formally mark the conferral of city status and make a short speech in the chamber room. After the ceremony, Charles and Camilla will take a short walk to Dunfermline Abbey to mark its 950th anniversary and be introduced to representatives from historic Scotland to learn about the heritage of the local area and conservation of the site. At Holyrood House, the King and Queen Consort will host a reception in the Great Gallery, where they'll meet between 200 and 300 guests of British Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Sri Lankan Nepalese, Bhutanese, and Moldavian heritage from across the UK. The event aims to recognise the contribution many from these communities have made to UK life, from the National Health Service to the arts, media, education, business, and the armed forces. An article written by Laura Webster. The National News on Wednesday, the 28th of September. Kit Price Fixing sees £2 million fine by Watchdog an article written by Gregor Young. JD Sports, Elite Sports and Rangers Football Club have been fined a total of more than £2 million by the competition watchdog after it found they fixed the prices of replica football kits. The Competition and Markets Authority, or CMA, said Elite Sports and JD Sports broke the law by fixing retail prices of the Rangers' branded kits and other clothing items from September 2018 to July 2019. It added that Rangers also took part in the collusion, but only in fixing the price of specific adult home short-sleeved shirts from September to mid-November 2018. The CMA added that all three worked together to stop J.D. Sports undercutting the retail price of the shirt on Elite's Jers Online store. J.D. Sports has been fined £1.485 million Elite Sports fined £459,000 and Rangers Football Club fined £225,000. The regulator first began an investigation in December 2020. Elite manufactured Rangers branded clothing at the time and also sold it through its online store and later in physical stores in Glasgow and Belfast, while JD Sports was the only UK-wide major retailer also selling the items at the time. The CMA said its investigation found that the football club became concerned that at the start of the 2018-2019 season, JD Sports was selling the Rangers' replica top at a lower price than Elite. This resulted in an agreement between the parties that JD Sports would lift its price from £55 to £60 to bring it in line with Elite. The CMA said it also found that Elite and JD Sports, without involvement from Rangers, fixed the prices of Rangers-branded clothing, including training wear and replica kit, over a longer period. Michael Grenfell, Executive Director of Enforcement at the CMA, said, At a time when many people are worried about the rising cost of living, it's important that football fans are able to benefit from competitively priced merchandise. Instead, Elite, JD Sports and, to some extent, Rangers worked together to keep prices high. Today's decision sends a clear message to football clubs and other businesses that illegal anti-competitive collusion will not be tolerated. JD Sports said yesterday that it will not be appealing against the penalty and said it already set aside a provision of roughly £2 million to cover the matter, including associated legal costs. No directors or senior management of JD were involved in the offending conduct, which took place in 2018-2019, to 2019, the company added. JD has taken a number of steps to strengthen its competition compliance programme and is committed to ensuring that this is embedded into its daily operations. Lisa Webb, consumer law expert for consumer interests group WITCH, said loyal football fans being exploited by some sports retailers and clubs is not new. Which fought for fans to be compensated for kit price fixing 15 years ago, so it's frustrating that this unfair practice has happened again. It's good to see the regulator taking strong action with substantial fines for the guilty parties, sending a firm message that this behaviour is unacceptable and will not be tolerated. An article written by Gregor Young. The National Politics on Wednesday, the 28th of September. Starmer nets applause with vow to snub SNP. An article written by Craig Meegan. Keir Starmer won a standing ovation from Labour Party members after he said that under no circumstances will Labour work with the SNP. Addressing Labour's conference in Liverpool, the party leader said the SNP did not want to see Scotland thrive within the UK. He said the SNP saw Scotland's success in the union as a roadblock to independence. He told party members, Labour will make Brexit work. Labour will deliver change. You'll never get that from the Tories, and you won't get it from the SNP either. Conference, the challenges we face, the cost of living crisis, climate change, standing up to Putin, are common across our four nations. We saw off the threat of fascism and deadly disease together. We built the NHS and the welfare state together. But I don't believe in our union just because of our history. I believe in it because of our future. Mr Starmer said Scotland needs a Labour government that can deliver change, which won him another standing ovation. He added, but Scotland also needs the power and resources to shape its own future, whoever's in power in Westminster, and the SNP is not interested in this. For them, Scotland's success in the UK is met with gritted teeth, seen as a roadblock to independence – And so they stand in the way. We can't work with them. We won't work with them. No deal under any circumstances. Mr. Starmer promised a fairer, greener, more dynamic Scotland in a fairer, greener, more dynamic Labour Britain. The SNP said that Mr. Starmer's speech confirmed, once again, that independence is the only route to escape a Conservative government. Responding to Mr. Starmer, the party's Westminster deputy leader, Kirsten Oswald, said. Keir Starmer's remarks not only failed to set out anything new or of substance to Scotland, they also reaffirmed yet again that only with independence will we be able to escape damaging Westminster control and repeated Tory governments for good. Ms Oswald accused Labour of turning into the Tories by adapting a hardline stance on Brexit, which she said denied Scotland the right to choose its own future. The SNP MP said Labour had prioritised grubby council coalitions with the Tories across Scotland. She continued, Rehashed reports of constitutional tinkering provide absolutely no protection against Westminster austerity, naked power grabs and repeated Tory governments we didn't vote for. While Labour has slid into irrelevance in Scotland, the SNP will continue to stand up for Scotland's interests. The reality is that only with independence will we be able to build a fairer society and escape damaging Westminster control and harmful policies we didn't vote for. The Labour leader promised he would make Brexit work as he hammered the Tories on their record on the economy. In an appeal to Brexit voters, Mr. Starmer said those who voted to leave the European Union in 2016 had been let down. He told the Labour conference, The policy of my Labour government will always be to make Brexit work. It's no secret I voted Remain, as the Prime Minister did. But what I heard around the country was people who thought we'd got our priorities wrong, who wanted democratic control over their lives, but who also wanted opportunities for the next generation, communities they felt proud of, public services they could rely on. Mr Starmer said he did not hear that Brexit was about slashing workers' rights – lowering food standards or ending redistribution. The Labour leader also promised a new state-owned energy firm to help build a fairer, greener, more dynamic nation, as he sought to present Labour as an alternative to Tory failure. He said Liz Truss's government should not be forgiven for the market turmoil unleashed since Friday's mini-budget and promised Labour would restore our sense of collective hope. He said the government had lost control of the British economy and crashed the pound. He added, Not for you, not for working people, for tax cuts for the richest 1% in our society. Don't forget, don't forgive. The Labour leader said the Tories haven't just failed to fix the roof, they've ripped out the foundations, smashed through the windows and now they've blown the doors off for good measure. A Labour government would get us out of this endless cycle of crisis with a fresh start, a new set of priorities and a new way of governing. Painting himself as the successor to Clement Attlee, Harold Wilson and Sir Tony Blair, he said the party would provide the leadership the country so desperately needs. Because as in 1945, 1964 and 1997, this is a Labour moment, he added. Mr Starmer said the war in Ukraine was not to blame for the way the Tories had left the UK unprepared for the economic fallout and the soaring energy bills faced by firms and families. Labour would set up Great British Energy within its first year in office to take advantage of the opportunities in clean power in order to cut bills and generate a return for the nation, he vowed. Mr Starmer said the future wealth of this country is in our air, in our seas, in our skies. Britain should harness that wealth and share it with all, British power to the British people. The Electricity Generation Company would be funded from the £8 billion National Wealth Fund already announced by Labour and would have operational independence, allowing it to invest in green energy schemes. Mr Starmer stressed how much the party had changed under his leadership to make it fit to serve our country, in a swipe at Jeremy Corbyn's record. That's why we had to rip anti-Semitism out by its roots, he said. Why we had to show our support for NATO is non-negotiable, show we want business to prosper, shed unworkable policies. Country first, party second. A Tory spokesman dismissed Mr Starmer's speech as his 11th relaunch to date and full of vacuous slogans, rehashed phrases and empty promises. An article written by Craig Meaghan. The national politics on Wednesday, the twenty-eighth of September, Labour in the game for fourteen Scottish seats. An article written by Xander Eliots Anna Sawa has claimed that Labour will be in the game for as many as fourteen Scottish constituencies in the next UK general election. Currently, the party has only one MP north of the border, Shadow Scottish Secretary Ian Murray in Edinburgh South. However, the Scottish Labour leader told the BBC that the party could make significant gains at the next Westminster election. Mr Sawa pointed to the results of 2022's Scottish local elections to back up his claim. Speaking to the BBC from Labour's party conference in Liverpool, the Glasgow List MSP said, I'm not going to put a number on it, but I want us to make significant gains. If we look at the council election results, we were in the game in around 13 or 14 seats if that council election was reflected. I'm not saying we could have won 13 or 14 seats. We were in the game in 13 or 14 seats. I think in the context of a UK government where we're not just going to oppose the Tories, we're going to replace them, I genuinely believe that we can make significant gains. There are currently 59 Scottish MPs at Westminster, however this could decline if proposed constituency boundary changes are finalised. At its peak in 1997 and 2001, Labour won 56 seats in Scotland, however there were 72 up for grabs at the time. Mr Starwar further told the BBC, I think Scotland is not going to be the drag on the ticket, Scotland's not going to be what stops us from having a UK Labour government. Scotland's going to help us deliver that UK government. Mr Sawa, who took the reins of the party in Scotland at its lowest ebb ahead of last year's Holyrood election, said he thought Prime Minister Liz Truss was more dangerous than the late former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and Boris Johnson. We cheered Boris Johnson going, and we rightly did, because he dishonoured the role of Prime Minister. But actually Liz Truss is worse than Boris Johnson, he said. She's more right-wing, more ideological, cutting the cap on bankers' bonuses, giving tax cuts to the richest. She's redistributing wealth, but from the poorest to the wealthiest. I actually think she's more dangerous than Margaret Thatcher, and I think the country is going to change that. He added that the UK government is the most economically illiterate, morally bankrupt government probably in history. The council elections earlier in the year saw Scottish Labour leapfrog the Tories to take second place. Mr Sawa's party returned 282 seats to the Conservatives' 214. However, the result was still one of the worst in Scottish Labour's history and way behind the SNP's total of 453 councillors. An article written by Xander Eliot's, The National. Politics. On Wednesday the 28th of September. Ministers unveil plans for a Scottish work visa pilot. An article written by Steph Braun. Ministers have revealed plans to pilot a Scottish visa scheme to allow some businesses to more easily recruit foreign nationals. The new scheme is designed to help resolve a shortage of workers in certain sectors post-Brexit. But with immigration reserved to Westminster, the Scottish Government has had to send its plans to the Home Office to be rubber-stamped. The pilot initiative has been created by Mary Guggen, Cabinet Secretary for Rural Affairs and the Islands, and Europe Minister Neil Grey, and aims to attract workers to areas struggling to recruit staff in remote areas. Scotland's rural areas have experienced population decline over a number of years. In 2019, their share of the working age population was between 6 and 7% below the Scottish average. Many rural areas are dependent on migration to fill vacancies, with many jobs in care homes, hospitality and farm work not meeting the required salary thresholds set by the UK government to allow people from the EU or other parts of the world to take up posts. Prior to Brexit, freedom of movement across the EU allowed EU nationals to work in Scotland and elsewhere in the UK without the need for a visa. The scheme will build upon wider work the Scottish Government has submitted to the Migration Advisory Committee to date, which has shown how the current UK immigration system does not meet the economic and demographic needs of Scotland's communities. The UK's Migration Advisory Committee said in 2019 that the current migration system is not very effective in dealing with the particular problem's remote communities experience. The committee highlighted evidence from the Scottish Government on remote communities in their report of May 2019 and recommended the UK Government pilot a scheme to attract and retain migrants in remote areas. Ministers in Edinburgh believe the new Scottish visa plan could be implemented within the current UK immigration system. Their report, published yesterday, stated, We've developed a robust and deliverable proposal which draws on international evidence, clearly reflects the needs of local communities and employers, and is based on existing immigration enforcement. It added that the proposed Scottish Rural Community Immigration Pilot is modelled on a Canadian scheme designed to boost the population of its rural areas. The pilot would present a distinctly new, community-driven and employer-based migration route. It would offer a world-leading approach to spread the benefits of immigration to smaller communities, enabling migration, based on genuine employment opportunity, which would meet the economic and societal needs of a specific community, either in respect to acute shortage or potential for future growth or regeneration, the report said. Under the scheme, employer sponsors taking part within designated geographic areas referred to as community pilot areas would be able to advertise vacancies overseas. Employers and communities would then be able to assess prospective candidates before recommending chosen candidates to the Home Office for final approval and security checks. Once a decision is approved, employers, councils and other local organisations could offer a package of help to newcomers as they settle into life in rural Scotland. Migrants would be required to adhere to conditions of employment, whereby they are employed within the designated community pilot area, with restrictions easing gradually over a period of four years. After four years, restrictions would lift and migrants would be free to work anywhere in the UK outside of their pilot area. Constitution Secretary Angus Robertson warned that the scale of challenge that Scotland will face on population in the coming decades is immense, as the pilot scheme was debated in Holyrood yesterday. The SNP-MSP told the Chamber there's no easy fix to local population challenges, such as depopulation. That's why we're working collaboratively with both the Convention of Scottish Local Authorities and local authorities in general, and through structures such as the Convention of the Highlands and Islands and the Convention of the South of Scotland, to make sure we have a partnership approach which best addresses our population challenges. However, migration is a crucial part of that approach, yet current UK government immigration policy does not reflect the needs of Scotland's rural communities. A UK government spokesman said immigration is a UK government-reserved matter and the points-based immigration system works in the interest of the whole of the UK. Depopulation in Scotland is neither caused nor can be remedied by immigration. As the Independent Migration Advisory Committee has noted, rural areas may struggle to retain migrants for the same reasons as with the local population. Investment in jobs and infrastructure, which devolved administrations have the powers to address, must be considered an article written by Steph Braun From the National Thursday the 29th of september twenty twenty
1: two from the politics section The Joker Andrew Bowie torn apart after criticizing Nicholas Sturgeon for being angry by the Joker Never let it be said that Liz Truss government is not efficient. It only took them a few days to decimate the British economy and humiliate the UK in the world stage. Sacrificing the value of the pound on the altar of growth, the Tories have continued to insist that they've made the right decisions as the ceiling caves in around them. Even unprecedented interventions from the International Monetary Fund and the Bank of England haven't been enough to convince the Foreign Secretary, who didn't realise the difference between the Baltic and Black Seas, that she might not know everything. The extent of the Tories purposeful economic vandalism will be felt for years, even decades to come, even if some of the more optimistic predictions come true and trust is gone by Christmas. Unsurprisingly, with people facing double digit inflation, skyrocketing energy bills and eye-watering increases in mortgage payments, some of the UK is more than a little angry. But if you're a Scottish Conservative, there are apparently other, more pertinent issues at hand. Like how Nicola Sturgeon conducts herself at FMQs. You always know Nicola Sturgeon is having a bad week at FMQs when she gets angry, Tory MP Andy Bowie wrote on Twitter, and she's very angry this week. Why the hell are you not angry? Glasgow Council leader Susan Aitken asked. I'm enraged at the damage your government is inflicting on in Glasgow households, she added. SNP Minister Christina McKelvey responded. The whole country is angry at economic vandalism and morally repugnant policies of the UK government. And the party's deputy leader, Keith Brown, wrote, When thousands of mortgage deals are withdrawn, billions of pounds are spaffed away already in dealing with Tory blunder budget, and millions very worried about rising mortgage, food, energy costs. I give you the only person in the known universe who is not, to some extent, angry. Twitter users who aren't also elected officials use some less d- delicate language, which the jerker won't repeat but you can probably take a punt at. Bowie, who openly supported Rishi Sunak during the leadership campaign, seems to have fallen willingly into line behind all the other fawning Tory- Scottish Tories, desperate for some crumbs from the top table. All the tweeting hasn't landed Bowie a ministerial yet- role yet though. His Tory masters decided to ennoble an unelected businessman instead of letting him anywhere near a government position. And that article is by The Joker. From The National, Thursday the 29th of September 2022, from the politics section, Liz Truss breaks silence on economy chaos in painful series of BBC interviews, by Laura Webster. Liz Truss has broken her silence on the fallout from the Tory government's mini-budget, arguing that she and her ministers had to take urgent action to get the UK's economy going. The Prime Minister was facing intense pressure to speak up as the pound plunged, the IMF gave an extraordinary statement, and the Bank of England was forced to intervene on her government's tax slashing measures. In a series of eight, pause Phils interviews with the BBC local radio stations in England, snubbing Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Trust doubled down on the Chancellor's strategy with a number of scripted lines. Rather than engage with specific questions on the economic chaos sparked by Friday's policy announcements, which will see the wealthiest gain the most, Truss gave vague statements on the need to act on energy bills, describing that policy as the biggest part of the mini-budget. But the government's policy to freeze average household energy bills at 2,500 under a new energy price guarantee had already been well publicised in the days before the Chancellor's announcement to the Commons. Analysts agree that it's the tax cuts for the wealthy set to be brought in using increased government borrowing, which has sparked the market panic since the weekend. Trust also claimed that we are living through a global financial situation sparked by Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. During an interview with BBC Radio Bristol, she avoided the question when asked if Putin was responsible for the Bank of England's major intervention. In her first public comment since quasi quarteting's statement plunged the, plunged the financial markets into turmoil, the Prime Minister told BBC Radio Leeds, We had to take urgent action to get our economy growing, get better moving, and also deal with inflation. Of course, that means taking controversial decisions, but I'm prepared to do that as Prime Minister because of what is important to me is that we get our economy moving. We make sure that people are able to get through this winter, and we're prepared to do what it takes to make that happen. Shortly after, the Prime Minister told BBC Radio Norfolk Of course, there are elements of controversy as there always are but my priority was making sure that we were supporting the British people in what is going to be a very difficult winter and a difficult time. Asked whether she would stick to her plan, Prime Minister Liz Truss told BBC Radio Norfolk This is the right plan that we have set out. This is about making sure people are going into the winter period not worried about high fuel bills, which is what we were looking at. It was simply unconscionable that we could have allowed this to happen. Asked on BBC Radio Norfolk if Trust thinks she's smarter than IMF, Bishops, the RSPB and economists who are all sounding the alarm for her money budget. Again, she refused to back down, telling listeners, As Prime Minister, I have to do what I believe is right for the country. Pressed on whether people's pensions were safe after reports that funds would have collapsed without Bank of England action, Trust said, the Bank of England do that and they do a very good job of it. Trust said it was simply not true when asked by BBC Radio Nottingham whether her mini-budget was at reverse Robin Hood that disproportionately benefited, benefited the most wealthy. She said, The biggest part of the package we announced is the support on energy bills, making sure that people across this country are not facing energy bills of more than £2,500 and that businesses can get through this winter. We were facing a situation where pubs were going to go out of business, where shops were going to go out of business. People were facing unaffordable energy bills and the package we presented in the energy statement, but also in the mini-budget last week. The biggest part of that is to help in energy. Pressed on whether it's fair to give those earning the most big tax breaks, Trust said, It's not fair to have a recession. It's not fair to have towns when you're not having investment. It's not fair if we don't get high paying jobs in the future because we've got the highest tax burden in 70 years that's what's not fair on bbc radio Tees, trust was told of the listener diane who has had to sell her house of 25 years due to the cost of living crisis the prime minister was asked how our tax cuts for the wealthies would help people like diane and replied well we are cutting taxes across the board because if we were facing the highest tax burden and bitten for 70 years And that was causing a lack of economic growth. And without growth we don't get the investment, we don't get the jobs we need, which helps local communities right around the country. We're also reversing the increase in national insurance. We're also reducing the basic rate. So we're reducing taxes across the board because the tax burden was too high. The Prime Minister's media round comes after the Bank of England launched an emergency government bond buying programme to prevent borrowing costs from spiralling out of control and stave off a material risk to UK financial stability. The bank announced it was stepping in to buy up to £65 billion worth of government bonds, known as gilts, at an urgent pace after fears over the government's economic policies sent the pound tumbling and sparked a sell off in the gilts market, which threatened to spark the collapse of some UK pension funds. The FTSE 100 index has also been hit by marked volatility, Amid the bond sell-off and wider global recession fears. Falling by nearly 2% in early trading on Thursday after a roller coaster ride on Wednesday. And that article is by Laura Webster. From the National. Thursday the 29th of September 2022. From the politics section. To Labour, Scotland as a nation means nothing but seats to be won. By readers of the National. I have been watching the antics of the UK Labour Party in Liverpool. Each member of their shadow cabinet trotted up to the podium and sounded off about Tory failure and how they are going to turn around Labour's fortunes at the next general election. It really seemed quite surreal. This party has lost its way. With the union Jack in the background and the new national anthem being sounded off with great gusto, it is clear that there is not a wafer of difference between this red Tory party and the blue Tory party. These British nationalists with their HQs in London and their branch offices in other nations of the UK peddle their promise of change. Ironically, the Tory party raises the public borrowing to unprecedented levels, very much a fundamental Labour Party policy, while Keir Starmer talks about public spending c- controls. Radical tax changes and redistribution of wealth are nowhere to be seen. Sadly, England's voters have to suffer the principle of, of a Buggins turn, if it is the Tories' turn this time, to govern, it must be Labour's turn next time. Fortunately for us Scots, we have a third alternative, one which you have democratically voted for on a regular basis for more than 15 years, the Scottish National Party. To Anna Sarwar, Keir Starmer, Lisa Nandi, and Angela Raynor, Scotland as a nation means little other than seats they must win to get a Westminster majority. The brutal attacks on the SNP and its performance in Scotland by these listed are such that any objectivity has been abandoned. It has been replaced by a Labour Party that has yet to get over the fact they are no longer weighing their votes at each election in Scotland and that the Scottish electorates have still to see the error of their ways. The fact is, they are irrelevant in Scotland, with one MP, only empowered by Tory Lib Dem tactical voting, out of 59 MPs and 22 MSPs, two constituency 20 list, out of 129 MSPs, they are a rump party run from Westminster. In Scotland, they are the divided party with an ever-changing leadership, with their voters having gone to SNP in droves since 2014, and even one in four members supporting Scottish independence. Unfortunately for the Labour Party, a different strategy is required if they wish to turn around their fortunes in Scotland. A fundamental change towards Scottish independence will be crucial. Unfortunately, their Labour bosses in England only see winning back the Redwall voters, panting to the needs of the shires, the North, the champion Labour intellectuals of the South as their prime target. Saving their precious union and no coalition with the SNP are fundamental to beating the Tories and getting back into Westminster. It seems unbelievable the naivety of Sarwar, who cannot seem to get the Scottish message over to his English masters, and, even worse, happily echoes the policy objective and aspirations of his party which are clearly aimed at an English voting audience. For a party founded on equality, trade union rights, tolerance, fairness and a caring society, it is breathtaking to the vicious narrative and attacks that Sarwar and his senior Labour colleagues have made on the SNP during their 15 years in office. Of course, there are criticisms, but anyone looking dispassionately at what the SNP's government's record would see a clear attempt to create a social democracy in our country which delivers the many principles which laid the foundations of the Labour Party. Never has the social and political path been taken by Scotland been in direct contrast to that of England. Sadly, the British Labour Party, with its branch office in Scotland, has chosen the path of an England which has lost its way. Thankfully, the Electorate of Scotland decide our government and have done so for fifteen years and consigned the Labour Party to the wilderness. By Dan Wood, Kerry Muir from the National, Thursday the 29th of September 2022, from the news section, Unite members accept Cosla pay deal for Scottish local authority staff, by Ninian Wilson. Members of Unite have voted to accept a pay deal for local council staff in Scotland. The new offer, which will provide £1,900 extra for staff earning less than £39,000 per year, was approved by 75% of members, the union said. The vote takes Scotland's council workers one step further away from strike action, with Unison the only union still to vote on the deal. Waste workers in Edinburgh walked out at the height of the festival season, while colleagues in other areas also downed tools. A deal with local authority body COSLA, brokered by marathon talks involving the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, later resulted in further strikes, and action proposed by non-teaching education staff to be suspended. The GMB Union accepted the deal earlier this week. Unite General Secretary Sharon Graham said Unite's members have voted to accept a pay offer that will help them make ends meet during this cost of living crisis. Our members led from the front and throughout this nationwide dispute which started during the Edinburgh Fringe and then spread across Scotland. The package will deliver better jobs, terms and conditions for our members and local government and they should be congratulated for the brave stand they took but the union also hit out at the Scottish government saying it will not tolerate proposed cuts of £500 million as a result of the pay deals. Deputy First Minister John Swinney, currently in control of Scotland's finances, made the announcement last month earmarking savings including £53 million from employability services and £37.6 million from lower-than-forecast uptake of concessionary travel. Wednesday, Dunsmore, the union's lead negotiator for local government, said, The Scottish government are already shamefully threatening to make £500 million worth of cuts to public services, which we will not tolerate. The robbing Peter to pay Paul narrative being spun by government ministers that decent pay rises only come with another service in the public sector being slashed is dangerous and it will be fought inch by inch by Unite. And that article was by Ninian Wilson from The National. Thursday, the 29th of September 2022, from the politics section, sketch, what energy crisis? It's Groundhog Day for Ferries at FMQs, by Kirsty Strickland. Hello and welcome to the year 2052. Sea levels have risen so dramatically that a cul-de-sac in Northern Kilcoyne has just been announced as Scotland's new capital city. Lorpak is now a high valuable tradable commodity and helps shore up our new currency. Citizens burn £50 notes to generate enough heat to boil water for their weekly cup of tea. Breakfast programmes have been replaced with a daily report streamed across all channels entitled Crisis Watch How Bad Will Today Be? UK ministers have stacked their red boxes and a few broken Downing Street wine fridges against the number 10 door to try and keep out looters. Liz Trust thus far has evaded capture and is still on the run. Meanwhile, at Holyrood, silver here Douglas Ross is talking about ferry contracts again. I get it, I do. It's an important issue, made topical again by the recent episode of BBC Disclosure, The Great Ferry Scandal. Douglas Ross has returned to the subject at FMQs time and time again, trying to get answers from the Scottish Government. I just wish he could have condensed his questions into one session so we could move to the cost of living crisis, the energy crisis the financial crisis and all the other associated crises. Anyway, it's not my job to tell the Scottish leader what to do. That's the Prime Minister's job. So I'll stick to a recap of Ferry's FMQs. All aboard the Good Ship Groundhog Day, where Douglas Ross accuses Nicholas Sturgeon's government of a cover-up on how ferry contracts were awarded. Ferguson's were the only bidder given access to a 424-page cheat sheet on how to build ferries. They received a confidential, in person meeting with people involved in buying their ferries. They were the only bidder allowed to resubmit with a new design. So why did they get special treatment? he asked. Nicholas Sturgeon said that ministers were not aware of any impropriety in the procu- in the procurement process, and they were not involved in the process or privy to exchanges between CMAL and bidders. However, the allegations in BBC Disclosure Programme are serious allegations I asked the Permanent Secretary to engage with Audit Scotland earlier this week about further investigation and I welcome the confirmation from Audit Scotland that they will be looking at the substance of these allegations, she said. Douglas Ross hit back saying the only conclusion that any reasonable person could draw is that the deal was rigged. Well, I am an unreasonable person and I think FMQs is rigged to be as dull as humanly possible. We're probably only a few weeks away from the next ferry's FMQs when Audit Scotland releases the outcome of its investigation and Nicola and Douglas Ross selectively pick out quotes to read to each other that, say, that say, they say prove that others are wrong. Halloween in the Chamber is going to be interesting this year when the Scottish Tory leader dresses up as a half-built fairy to spook Nicola Sturgeon and she returns a favour by dressing up as a YouGov poll showing Scottish voting intentions. And that was today's sketch by Kirsty Strickland. From The National Thursday the 29th of September 2022 From the news section Yes in the City Hub Opens in Dunfermline with Talk From Lesley Riddick By Ailey Eakin A resource for people who want To learn more about Scottish independence Has opened in Dunfermline The new Yes in the City Hub On Chalmers Street was opened officially By Fife broadcaster, journalist And activist Lesley Riddick Last week She delivered a call to mobilise the Yes movement and said that being part of it was like being in love. It's heady. You can't think about anything else. You're excited all the time, she added. She did us support for Scottish independence in Europe and praised the Europe for Scotland organisation, which has gained favour from the likes of William Boyd and Brian Eno. There are little posses in practically every European country ready to argue for our case for independence, Leslie explained. She also challenged voters in Dunfermline, saying, What are you doing? How much do you care? The hub is open from 10am until 4pm Monday to Saturday. And that piece was by Eiley Aitken.
0: And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes, with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.